I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. So this episode was supposed to come out in mid-March, but due to some personal complications, the schedule is pushed up a bit, which means this episode, referencing what is commonly known as the Passion of the Christ, is airing just two weeks before Easter. Not intentional, but still good timing. This episode's guest is my friend Keanu Hidari. Part of me is sincere in this belief that it's not always self-generated. It comes from a culture, from communities, from societies that ultimately blame women and men for their own victimization. And if we admit that Jesus as Savior experienced victimization on the cross, we have to reevaluate that category. Keanu Hidari is a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. He studies migration and race in Europe. He's also interested in New Testament studies, social justice, and amplifying the voices of the marginalized in the church. All guests on Uncertain are sharing their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Tears of Eden. I will give a trigger warning for this episode as it addresses some difficult subjects, including sexual abuse. If you're a regular listener of Uncertain, you've heard us mention that sexual abuse and spiritual abuse are similar in their impact on a person's spirit and body. I personally found this idea that Jesus was sexually abused to be comforting, but there's a chance this episode will be difficult for many. So take your time, take a breath, and maybe skip this episode altogether. Here's my interview with Keanu Hadari. Well, I've been thinking about your, ever since you messaged me, just like suggesting the idea of this topic of the fact that Jesus was sexually abused. And it was interesting when you, when you mentioned it, it was like not knowing anything else about, you know, the history or the potential for assault or anything. I realized I'm, I'm like, I've totally looked at the crucifixion through a patriarchal lens because if it was a if it were a woman and a woman was put on display her body was put on display I wouldn't even have like a second thought about that being sexual abuse like there wouldn't there would not be any need for me to even think about whether or not I would consider that sexual abuse and as for as long as I've known the crucifixion story since I was six years old and you see paintings of Jesus hanging on a cross and he's got the toga on and everyone says, you know, that's creative license. Normally when they string people up on a cross, they string them up naked. And so, you know, that yet it never, ever like occurred to me like sexual exploitation at all. And so I would just love to hear, I read your article I'll link it to this in the show notes, but yeah, just the stuff that you have been learning and like, where did this come where, where did, how was this introduced to you? So many, no, I wouldn't say many years ago, several years ago, I read uh, David Toombs's article on Latin American state use of torture mm-hmm. and his connection with the usage of vi- sexual violence in Latin American context, comparing it with the crucifixion narrative. Mm-hmm. And I was blown away by it. And for many years, I, I just didn't hear anything else about it. Nobody was talking about this. And once I saw that he was coming out with a, a book on the topic that there it's, it's called, when did we see you naked? Jesus mm-hmm. is a victim of sexual abuse. Once I saw that I was like, oh, he actually followed up on this topic. It and, wasn't just like a uh, one and done thing. He was researching. It wasn't a one and done thing. Exactly. He's actually coming out with a new book called The Crucifixion of Jesus, 
torturous sexual abuse and the scandal of the cross. So I think a lot of people in, I would just be honest and say more mainline denominations where social justice issues are more front and center, people are talking about this issue more. And what I love about, what I love about your podcast is that it's bringing to light the stories of people who are experiencing things that for most people in the church remain fringe topics. Yes. And what's interesting is that it's not fringe. It's not the Mm -hmm. preponderance of sexual abuse uh, of sexual humiliation, sexual intimidation in the church is outstandingly high. And what I believe is that to put the to put the the pitch of this episode in a nutshell, bringing front and center the story of Christ's sexual humiliation is pastorally useful because it reminds parishioners and even people who have who are outside of the faith. It reminds everybody that the center of the Christian faith, Christ was himself a victim of sexual abuse. Yep. And that this story is, is pastorally useful in as much as it brings to light the fact that God is in solidarity with people, mm-hmm. with, with all kinds of, you know, when I was, you know, deep and uh, heavily invested in the reformed Calvinistic tradition, people would often say to me, well, you know, Christ didn't experience every kind of every kind of violence in the physical act of the crucifixion. But on why the would cross, they say that? What was the motivation behind saying that? That's a I curious think, thing you know, to say. It is curious because it's saying that, you know, Christ wasn't beheaded, for example. Oh, okay. and some and some martyrs in the in the church were beheaded. Right. So mm-hmm. he didn't experience every kind of violence that we know. But on the cross, he experienced the full width and breadth of human suffering. And I always took that to mean that, well, Christ doesn't necessarily have to experience everything just to be in solidarity with me. But here's the thing. We, we know that's true. We know God is in solidarity with every single person through the event of his self-disclosure in Jesus. Mm-hmm. But we're ignoring what the literal text says. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, paintings of Christ since the time of the, the Council of Trent in the 16th century have, have, have basically depicted Jesus with a loincloth. Mm-hmm. When, as you said, we know this is not what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And it's because the, second, the, 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 the Council of Trent said there should not be any lascivious or lewd depictions of Jesus. Got it. But what I wanted to do was, I'm not sure um, where exactly you could place this in terms of the chronology of the episode. I just wanted to read that one paragraph um, Mm -hmm. in it's, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and governor's headquarters is the Greek word for praetorium. And they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And so I wanted to ask you, what strikes you about this passage that in light of, in light of our topic, what, what, have you, what, what do you see in this passage that we don't normally see? I guess I'm... I'm... I, it was never before you brought this up and we started discussing it. It was never what what's going on behind the scenes. What we're not seeing in this text is very stark 
to me, like what's happening in this, you know, few sentences that took place over a whole, a whole, like overnight, right? Like it took place overnight. So this, this is like an hours and hours and hours long, like event spectacle, basically that's happening. And we're, we're not, we don't always, my attention is not always drawn to what we're not hearing here. So that's what strikes me first of all. Absolutely. And I think it was really verse uh, 27 that arrested my imagination because I'd never seen this before. I'd never understood that when it says the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole cohort around him. Mm -hmm. We have research that shows that victims of crucifixion in the Roman Empire were victim were often very often victims of sexual humiliation. Mm. So one of the things that David Toome said in his article in the 90s, and he published the same uh, a modified version of the article in his new book, the edited volume. He says, "We'll never know for sure what actually happened behind the scenes of in in the in the in the court in the Praetorium." The very base consensus that everyone seems to acknowledge on the surface, but nobody wants to, apparently no one wants to talk about, is that you mentioned he was sexually humiliated by having his nakedness exposed to everyone around him. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, granted, in contemporary culture, being naked in public is is still frowned upon. But in Jewish culture, in the Mm -hmm. first century, nakedness held a very severe social stigma. For, for those uh, listeners who uh, of yours who might have had some biblical formation, I'm sure they were familiar with the story of Noah and mm-hmm. uh, his children, where they had to, two of them had to walk backwards to put a tarp on him, right, when Noah was inebriated. And so- so they the, wouldn't the, see him as they were covering him up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so the, at the very least, we can acknowledge that the nakedness of Jesus is a is an affront to his dignity as a person, mm-hmm. is an affront to his autonomy, and is an affront to the contemporary standards of his day. Yeah, and so that's what we can all agree on. Mm-hmm. What we um, what we don't go ahead. I was just gonna read a paragraph from your article, and 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 it's and you're you're probably about to say this, but a God who through Christ is to be identified with the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned is also to be identified with those suffering abuse and torture in the modern world. This is the case regardless of whether Jesus was quote merely sexually humiliated in public or also assaulted in private. And as David Toombs was saying, like we don't know exactly what happened, but sexual humiliation. It's it's like whether it was a sexual assault or sexual humiliation or not, it's both of them are sexual abuse and they both fall under that category and they're both horrific. No, you're absolutely right. That just to, to give some foundational, you know, signposts for the listeners, there 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 seems to be a, an uncertainty whether or not it was one or the other. Or and once once we're on the same page that the experience of Jesus on the cross was an example of sexual abuse, then I think we can have more productive conversations about- Yeah, more it doesn't matter abuse. whether it was assault or, or I mean, it matters, but either one is sexual abuse. And even that just shifts things to like see it in the context of sexual abuse. And I just think about like, just like when you first sent that message and it was just like, of course it was like, 
but I had never, never gone there, never thought of it, like never even like it wasn't even I had never even thought of it. I'm just like, man, I'm a feminist. <laughs> I never even thought of it like this. So I'm curious because you had brought up, I think a little bit in this article too, that there are scholars and there are theologians who are resistant to this idea of it being sexual abuse. Why are they resistant to it? What, what makes them resistant to the thought of Jesus being sexually abused? That's an excellent question. And I think Tombs and company who edited this volume are very focused on answering the question, why is there so much resistance? Mm. And I think that a lot of it has to do with the patriarchal cisgender normative culture of masculinity that the church has been enmeshed in for several hundred years that there 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 seems to be you know everyone from Kristen Dumez with Jesus and John Wayne to contemporary historians who are highlighting the pitfalls of modern evangelicalism they want to highlight this masculinist culture that views people who are at the receiving end of sexual violence as somehow less than, as mm-hmm. other than. Mm-hmm. In fact, once I posted the, an article, the, the link to this article that I wrote on my Twitter, some people said, you know, it's such a shame that, that you're highlighting the victimhood of Jesus. Jesus is my victor. Jesus is my savior. He's not a victim. Oh, that's bizarre. Like they need him to be like, they need him to be a John Wayne. They need him to be be Superman. Yeah. That, that is strong and has all of the superpower and he can come in and he can destroy all the people that do the bad things. And then this idea that he was like, what we see as the ultimate humiliation and that ultimate sign of victimhood that that would, he would go through that. Yeah. It makes total sense that this, and, and just that patriarchal narrative of needing Jesus to be, you know, the man, he he just needs to be the man. And even just, I mean, I even remember being told the reason why God chose to create Jesus as a man and not a woman indicated that God favored men over women. Like that was, that was, I was even told that. And so that whole idea that Jesus is a man and then he's also super strong and, you know, but then again, it's like, we still talk about the crucifixion, but I feel like oftentimes, and I'm just having this thought now, a lot of times when we talk about the crucifixion, we talk about God's wrath and like, look how bad you are. God had to take all of his anger and wrath out on Jesus. We, I don't feel like that idea of Jesus's victimhood is as discussed. And this specifically has never, I mean, honestly, until you messaged me, I've never ever heard. I mean, I've been to seminary. I've worked in multiple churches. I've been a part of Christendom for 36 years. Like this is the first time that this has ever, and it, and it's, it's just kind of like, I'm aghast a little bit that this is the first time that this has ever been suggested or even thought of. And also I wanted to say too, along the lines of the patriarchal lens thing about a couple of years ago, I wrote a, a novel. And one of the things that I like to do in my fiction writing is challenge gender, gender stereotypes and gender tropes. And in, in a way that makes us a little bit uncomfortable and makes us think a little bit. And this novel that I wrote was that was about a male sex slave. 
And I wanted to write that because, you know, we're so used to hearing stories about women being trafficked and having experiencing sexual abuse. And I wanted to sort of like renew the horror of it. Like if we put a man in that position, like what would happen and how, how would we, how would this change the way that we viewed this rather than like, oh, another victim of sexual abuse, but like, would this like renew the horror of it? And I was researching, trying to find stories of that male experience of sexual abuse. Kiana, here's the thing. This is 2021, or this was 2019, I guess, when I was trying to do the research. I found one book and I was looking for like clinical stuff, like, you know, therapists, you know, interviewing people or whatever. So I found one book and the book on Amazon, the reviews on Amazon were, this book isn't great, but considering there aren't any other books like it, I guess it's okay. Like that's literally what the reviews on Amazon said. I found one podcast, one episode, podcast episode talking about it. And then I found one article that was talking about, I can't remember which, what country it was, but male on male rape during wartime and what it was like for these men to then try to integrate back into normal society after they've gone through this horrific experience. That was it. This is 2021 and one in three women experienced sexual abuse. One in four men experienced it. That's a lot of men. And we don't have documented experiences. This is where like patriarchy, like impacts both, both men and women. It does not serve either, either gender. And just the impact that this idea could have on that male experience, because Jesus is a man. And I was just wondering what you thought, you mentioned this a little bit in your article, but what is the impact that you think this is going to have on just our practical applied theology. I think there are several theologians that I've relied on to get insight into what happens at the crucifixion Mm -hmm. um, that go beyond this kind of penal substitution narrative. And everyone from Karl Barth to Dietrich Bonhoeffer to people even more esoteric like René Girard have brilliant insights to offer us. And I just wanted to bring up one thing that granted, you know, Paul is very clear that Jesus is our substitute, that there are, there is some, you can at the very least acknowledge that there is some dimension of debt being remitted Mm -hmm. on the cross. But what we never talk about is the concept of the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is in Girard's thought. And I, I would love for more people to get into Girard or popular interpretations of Girard, because what we're doing, I want to be clear, we're not getting rid of the traditional interpretation of the cross. We're adding to it. We're ameliorating mm-hmm. it. And for Girard, his understanding is that Jesus comes to show us the true mire and muck of the human condition that it's not so much that the father is punishing mercilessly Jesus Christ on the cross, but that Jesus as God himself comes to show us how far that we've truly gone. And that as, as the scapegoat, as the one who bears the, the, the sins of the community, everyone points their fingers at Christ and says, crucify him, crucify him. Christ is the stand-in for the the conscience of a beleaguered community 
that is seeking to find autonomy, is seeking to find a way out of Roman occupation. And the benefit of the resurrection, the benefit of the Christian story for Girard is that we no longer need scapegoats anymore. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the way I connect that to Jesus' victimization is that we don't need to blame women, blame men for their experience of victimization. And so often, whenever I meet resistance to this topic, and again, I've only discovered in, in the last couple of years. By, by saying I, we don't need to, you're implying that there, there is an, like an intrinsic need that we have to make them at fault for their victimhood. Is that, is that what you're saying? That we, exactly. That's no longer necessary. Precisely right. We treat victims, and I've been saying victims a lot. I just wanted to clarify that I also intend to include in that the category of survivor as well. Mm-hmm. That once, once, once we deal with these people in a, in a practical, even clinical setting, we see that there is so much internalized shame and so much internalized guilt. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? I Part of me is sincere in this belief that it's not always self-generated. Mm-hmm. It comes from a culture, from communities, from societies that ultimately blame women and men for their own victimization. Yeah. yeah. And if we admit that Jesus as savior experienced victimization on the cross, we have to reevaluate that category. Mm-hmm. And that, and the, the depths of the resistance to this part of the story is as, as you mentioned at the beginning, the prevalence of sexual abuse within the church, there are a lot of people, if we're taking sides here, like, oh, these perpetrators, like God is not on their side. Like he, he's, he's not. And the idea that there's just this conservative effort. And I just, I know of so many cases right now of, of sexual abuse in the church and the, it's just mind blowing the concerted effort, not just of the abuser, the person who did the deed, but the entire misogynistic community around that person. Like they are so determined to protect this male perpetrator, like that, that effort, concerted effort to, and it's just, it's like, there's something really really messed up here that it's not just the abuser trying to defend themselves, but all the other men are trying to defend him too. And just, it's just, it's just so bizarre to me, but it would, it makes so much sense that that group of people would be very resistant to this idea of, of Jesus having experienced sexual assault, because it means he identifies with the people that they are trying to scapegoat (laughs) and they are trying to make an example of because he, it would just totally flip the narrative for them. And this, you know, Jesus cowboy and this Jesus Superman, that narrative benefits them. And, And they can kind of take that on as like, oh, but actually Christ was a victim of sexual assault and sexual humiliation. And you want to, do you want to take that on? Do you want to take that part of the representation of Jesus on as a pastor? No, they don't. They absolutely don't. And so, yeah, it's so crazy to me. You may already know this, but the Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. 
This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. How would you, how do you think that this would just impact our regular practice of Christianity? How would this impact just the out, outplaying of Christianity if this was a regular part of our teaching? I think we need to get back to basics. And once we're so enmeshed in this Jesus as Superman narrative, we forget what the Bible says. We forget what the early church fathers and mothers said. And I always love to go back to Philippians chapter two. I'm not going to go on citing another verse for you, but the whole idea is the self-emptying of God, that Jesus Christ empties himself. He takes on the form of a slave. He takes on the form of a servant to humanity. And in so much contemporary preaching, especially in reform circles, I, I don't hear messages about the servanthood of Jesus, about, about his his call to be, you know, the, the, some translations of the Bible, more progressive contemporary translations called Jesus, the, the human one. It's a more contemporary translation of the son of man. Mm-hmm. And once we get back to the, the basics of what, what Christ came to do, not as some victim of the father to instrumentally accomplish erasing our sins, but showing us what it means to live in community to value the autonomy of other people, to value, respect, cherish, and flourish in shalom with other people. I think ultimately what it means is recognizing how the world treated Jesus. That Bonhoeffer talks about the world emptying its wrath on the flesh of Jesus Christ. That oftentimes people who, and I'll use a sociological term here, people who are attached to the possessive investment in the logic of institutions, want to shield their parishioners from this really horrific picture of what actually happened at the crucifixion, because it would make them accountable. It would make them accountable to being part of the same gang of people who ultimately led to the death of God. Mm -hmm. I do feel like it's important to say here too, that there was autonomy, autonomy in Jesus becoming this victim, there was a choice in that because I, I have heard the teaching, this teaching in such a way that it, it's, it's basically used to keep victims in, in bondage, like, like basically telling you should be a doormat. Jesus was, you should be, you know, like, but Jesus made a choice, an autonomous choice. And, and if Jesus is God, a, a very divine choice to be in this position, most, most, not most victims of abuse oftentimes are very powerless and not oftentimes they are very powerless. They're, they're in positions of powerlessness. They have, they have these things perpetrated upon them from people in power there isn't a concerted choice there. And so victim, it's not glorifying victimhood. It's not saying to, to be a victim is what God requires of you. It, it's, it, it's, as we've been saying, it's solidarity in 
this is something that happens to people in this world and just sexual abuse, one in three women, one in four men. That's a lot of people who have experienced sexual abuse of some kind and, and it's a reality and it's Jesus standing in solidarity with that reality, not condoning that reality. I know that that's basic, super basic, obviously duh, but because I've seen this, you know, suffer as Jesus suffered used to, to keep people from saying my situation is bad and I'm going to, to exercise my agency to leave this situation. That is still a viable option and commendable for you. It's not intended to be used as a way of keeping someone in bondage. It's super important to say that. I spoke to a friend of mine who is actually very wary of this podcast idea because he was actually very adamant that this this narrative of Jesus uh, being a victim of sexual abuse and humiliation would actually end up going on the side of people who uh, are advocating human beings to be, not human beings, are advocating survivors to become doormats and just accept it. And so I hear that critique. I think it's a legitimate critique. It's that we don't want to let people use this narrative to make abuse more commonplace. (laughs) And And human beings, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Yes, absolutely. And so that's why I think it's so important to bring up this, this notion of the scapegoat and Gerard, the, the idea that the point was we don't end up crucifying God again. I know that's really, mm-hmm. I know that's really silly to say, but we don't want to end up in the same communities that led to the crucifixion to happen again. Mm-hmm. And ultimately what I'm finding is that there's this perverse logic of the, it's, it's a verse in the book of Hebrews. It's a warning of people not to drift away. And it, 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 the verse somewhere there says, lest you crucify Christ again. And what I'm finding in my research is that a lot of pastors and priests are crucifying their parishioners. It's a perverse logic going on. They are crucifying them by trapping them in cycles of guilt and shame and self-loathing by blaming them for their own sexual victimization. And I think that has to stop. Yeah. We need we need to show Jesus is not just in solidarity with human beings by virtue of his crucifixion on the cross, but that by experiencing sexual humiliation, he has unshrouded a whole domain of behavior that mm-hmm. needs to be redeemed and sanctified. We need to redeem and sanctify our sexual relations with other people. And this is something that's not very popular in the progressive circles I'm in uh, to, to comment about sexuality. It's in, you know, in the Episcopal church, in the PCUSA, we prefer not to talk about this kind of stuff. In conservative circles, they endlessly talk about sexual mores and behavior as being the end all be all of your status as a Christian, right? Yeah. We need some balance here. Mm-hmm. We need balance here. We so have you're experiencing show- either no talk about it or talk about it in this sort of obsessive way, but this is right. And you must all be following this vein to be right. But then it's, there's an obsessive teaching on it. Right. And the obsession, the obsessive teaching, I think ultimately is probably more harmful than not talking about it at all. Mm -hmm. But I think that ultimately we have to show people that respect for and dignity for the human person that, I mean, it sounds so silly for me to say it, but like men have to learn to behave. Yeah. We, 
the structures of cis heteropatriarchal normative society are such that, and this 2022, like yeah. at some point you wonder how right. often, right. How, <laughs> how much more needs to, how much more needs to be said, but right. I think it's, it's just a reflection on the violence of patriarchy mm. that young men and boys are still, I mean, in Southern California still are being encouraged to take on these roles and these performative expressions of their gender that lead to exploitation and violence. Right. And right. I think you asked me earlier in the episode, what is the pastoral implication of this? I think one pastoral implication has to be that we show Jesus showing us about what we're not supposed to do anymore. Right. That we're not supposed to scapegoat other people for being victims. We're not supposed to engender a society where someone can just take away the autonomy of another person. Right. It's just, yeah. And I just, and I, and I wonder if some resistance to this teaching is this hypersexualization, especially in churches where there's this, this very puristic teaching on sexuality, yet so many perpetrators are hiding behind the cloth and to, to recognize this. And it, and it's a, it's a very intrinsic part of of church culture, purity culture itself is, is very patriarchal and misogynistic in, in the way that it teaches about, you know, men, as you were saying, men need to behave like that men can't control themselves. And, and you have to put all of these barriers in place because you're incapable of a man of controlling yourself. And that's the narrative for men in patriarchal society. And it's narrative for men in the church. So that, that, that part is so it's so embedded into the culture there is going to be a resistance to this teaching because it it shows this act of violence and this this sexual humiliation of jesus like it show like this is bad like this isn't good this is there's no condoning of this type of behavior we're not like oh you poor man you can't control yourself it's like like this was part of jesus's torture this is really messed up and there's going to be a concerted cultural effort to, to, to suppress this and, and not to, to teach this because of how embedded this is into the culture. And it is, we don't want to realize it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to notice it, but it, it's so, it's so prevalent in evangelicalism, especially that obsession with sex and sexuality. And what might this mean for, what do you think this means for just survivors? How do you, how do you feel like this could impact the survivor story? In, in Matthew 25, there is a very provocative verse where um, Jesus is going on about, there's essentially two groups of people. And he's saying, you know, this is a horrible paraphrase, but he's going along the lines of, you know, you visited me in prison you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was uh, naked. And the people ask him, Lord, when did we ever see you naked? And Jesus says, whenever you did this for one of the least of these, you did it for me. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a sense of very eerie foreshadowing going on in the text where you have, when did, when did we see you naked? And then the disciples see Christ naked mm. in Matthew 27 that they're, they're, the, the, the nakedness of God, the vulnerability of God shows us what life in community is supposed to look like. That 
once we transcend the barriers of healthy boundaries of 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 the right to say no to someone else once we transcend those barriers we are no longer living in the shape of the cross we are no longer living in 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 what michael gorman calls cruciformity that we are living in light of our own selfish ambition our own selfish desires and for survivors what ultimately i want to do if i do anything at all in my in my however many years i have left i want to tell survivors that a what what you experience is not your fault mm -hmm. that b jesus christ as a reflection of the most ideal aspects of our humanity as a reflection of the most ideal aspects of what our institutions could look like stands in solidarity with you right that the third thing would be that theologically, the significance of, of the experience of the victimization of Christ on the cross is a fulfillment of so much typology in the Old Testament that you think about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how conservatives often utilize this passage, this pericope in yeah. Genesis, a weapon okay, against, against homosexuality. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> You think, you think about, this is something that a friend brought up to, uh, with me when I was talking about this issue, where you think about uh, Lot and Lot's daughters in, in Sodom and how, how the whole town, I mean, I'm sure the story is, is, a, is a very, it's a literary production. There's a lot of exaggeration in the text, but there's a lot of literary exaggeration in the text, but there, there is ultimately the scene when the whole town, even babies, uh, are trying to break into the door to sexually assault Lot and his daughters. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the reason is because there are angels as guests staying there. And if you look at the story, ultimately the angels are able to use light to prevent the victimization of Lot's daughters and his family, and they're able to escape. If you look at the story of the victimization of Christ, he did not escape that fate. Yeah. And to me, once I saw the connection typologically between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I see that the victimization of God is a, is like you mentioned, a theological resource for us to see that God chooses to be with us in the depths of our despair. Right. That survivors have to know this story so that they're aware of the depths God goes to, to be in solidarity with us. Right. To me, that's, that's, if, if not anything else, it's, it's moving. It, mm. it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's profound. Yeah. And there's a way that I feel like survivors get another way that survivors get sort of invalidated is by the story that, well, look at all the good things God has done. And I could see this somehow being used in that way too. Well, at least, you know, you went through what Christ went through, you know, like that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm very careful to always, always state that these horrible things that happened should have never happened. Like there is never a category where these horrible things should have ever happened. There's never a cat, like this horrible thing that happened to Jesus should have never happened. Like it's a, it's a horrible thing that this, that this happened yet we see this. And this is the redemption that on the other side of it, 
there is this element of good that does come that an element of good that could never have happened without that event, but it's redemption. It is not a reason for that to happen. It's not, it's not okay that this happened to anyone yet. There is this redemption that God does bring out of these horrific things and that's beauty and that's wonderful. And that's moving as you said, but there's never like, Oh, God chose you to go through this. Like, I never want to say, say that ever of just God being this torturer who just like chooses people to go through these horrific events. He's a God who redeems these horrific events. He doesn't cause these horrific events. But what does this mean for you, Keanu? Like, what was the personal impact for you when you made this discovery? I think I began to internalize more and more the Japanese idea of kintsugi. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Makoto Fujimura was on the podcast in the summer. So he's- Oh, was was the topic brought up? Yeah. He's really into kintsugi, kintsugi theology. Yeah. So I think this just goes to reinforce that for me, mm-hmm. where that so often we talk about our brokenness, right. but I think what God does for us is God gives us the tools to repair the shards mm-hmm. and the broken pieces of our humanity. And the redemption that you're talking about is the gold filaments and the gold lining of the pottery that's put back together. Yes. And it, it goes to show that the reintegration of our sense of self is possible after abuse, mm-hmm. that there is hope for restoration, for reconciliation, and for wholeness. Right. If not between members of the community, then at least in the person of the person who experienced the, the abuse. Yeah. That we don't have to live in the depths of the mire and the muck anymore. Mm-hmm. That, the, that the message of redemption is for everyone. That and I would make a very controversial claim that 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 puts my cards on the table, my my Bartian credential, so to speak. That one doesn't even have to verbally articulate these truths for for God to still love them. Right. That there is no single person for whom God does not possess love and affection, and I think God treasures the children who experience the most horrendous abuse and removal of agency. And this act of love goes beyond a nominal proclamation. Absolutely. It's an experiential proclamation. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, it just goes to show we've never in, in our, in our cultural milieu, we've never been taught this story in this way. Nope. Once we now are equipped with the language, with all the, with all the, uh, you know, quotation marks and the scare quotes and with, with, with everything in place so that we don't end up abusing the story more. We know that we know that people have a recourse to identify with God even more now. And to me, that's the ultimate benefit that we have. Yeah. It is a story of like, you're never going to go back to the way it was before, before it happened. And that, that innocence of before this, this thing was shattered. And, and I think that that's a, that's a grief that all of us survivors have to have to go through of like my life and who I am as a person is significantly 
altered forever because of this event. Yet that Kintsugi theology of, of God making something more beautiful out of this thing that was completely shattered is, is a hope for survivors because of this, this story, this part of the story that I, I mean, I feel like, I feel like it could be probably an exaggeration, but it could be revolutionary for the church to have this, this part of the story. Yet I'm also just like in my brain pinging all these ways that I know people are going to push back against it and (laughs) resist it and, or twist it and use it to shame survivors. And so um, like with anything, it's, yeah, something we have to carry uh, very carefully and with a lot of compassion. Well, I appreciate you giving your time. Was there anything else that you, you had to say or anything else you wanted to to survivors or anything. I think I, I, I articulated most of the main points I wanted to, to hit at. I don't think there's Great. anything else. Really appreciate the work that you're doing to bring to light all of this stuff. We need Thank to you. expose it. And the more we can shine light into it, the more truth comes out. Absolutely. Well, I'm always delighted to get to talk about these things. As always, wonderful to interact with you too, Keanu. Good luck in Paris. Thank and you so much. And uh, good luck with the dissertation. I appreciate it. I'm going to need it. Thanks for, thanks for bringing up this topic. I appreciate it. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Catherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.